0: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 9. The Devil's Greatest Enemy. Agnes Thompson confessed that the devil, being then at North Berwick Kirk, attending their coming in the habit or likeness of a man, and seeing that they tarried over long, he, at their coming, enjoyed them all to penance, which was that they should kiss his buttocks in a sign of duty to him. Which, being put over the pulpit bare, everyone did as he had envisioned them. And having made his ungodly exhortations, wherein he did great envy against the King of Scotland, he received their oaths for their good and true service towards him. At which time, the witches demanded of the devil, why did he bear such hatred to the King, who answered, by reason, The king is the greatest enemy he hath in the world. An excerpt from News from Scotland, a pamphlet published in 1591. Archibald, the Earl of Angus, departed this life taken away, as was vehemently suspected by witchcraft. He gave proof of his religion and piety at his last and greatest extremity. For howbeit, he was assured that he was bewitched, yet refused he all help by witches, but referred the event to God. It was constantly reported that his body pined and melted away with sweats, and in the meantime the witches were turning his picture in wax before a fire. David Calderwood The said Dr. Fian was soon after arraigned, condemned, and adjudged by the law to die, and then to be burned according to the law of that land, provided in that behalf. Whereupon he was put into a cart, and being first strangled, he was immediately put into a great fire, being ready, provided for that purpose, and there burned in the castle hill of Edinburgh, on a Saturday, in the end of January last past 1591. Another excerpt from the News from Scotland pamphlet. Welcome back to the History of Witchcraft podcast. Last time we discussed James's early reign and the state his mother, Mary Queen of Scots, had left his kingdom in. The episode before we heard the romantic story of James sailing across the North Sea to rescue his bride from Norway and Denmark after her fleet was turned back by storms. James's own journey was hampered by the weather too and upon his safe return to Scotland, with Queen Anne now in tow, he heard that the Danes had begun to hunt down the witches they believed had tried to kill their princess. Now, the extent to which James initiated the North Berwick Trials, as they came to be known, is a matter of some debate. Some argue that James took his cue from his Danish in-laws, and proactively sent out officials to discover the involvement of witches in his stormy voyage. This argument is then riven between those who believe that the royal officials were going to find evidence of witchcraft, whatever they came across, and those that say they merely came across common or garden witch accusations, and then connected them to the supposed attempt on the king's life. Still others hold the position that James was merely reacting to a witchcraft case that was thrust upon him, and that he and his officials were sincere in their interrogations. Whether James was proactive or reactive in regards to the trials, he certainly made use of them for his own purposes. If you remember a few episodes ago, I explained that there was a certain prestige to be had for lords and clergy to be targeted by witchcraft. Since witches were the devil's servants, being the focus of their attacks was essentially announcing to the world that you were doing God's work. Was it enough for James to allow this idea to naturally disperse around his kingdom and abroad? Not bloody likely. One of the two key sources of the trials, the pamphlet News from Scotland, was published during the height of the trials in London in 1591, which I read a couple of excerpts from at the start of today's episode. The claim that James was, quote, the devil's greatest enemy, is repeated again and again in the texts, both with subtlety and like a slap in the face, and the reason is fairly certain. In 1591, James was firmly Elizabeth Tudor's chosen successor for the throne of England after her death, the last remaining child of Henry VIII being herself unmarried and childless. This was never openly admitted, of course, but coded letters and a massive annual payment from England to Scotland from 1586 make it clear that he was fully intended to inherit her throne. Of course, within living memory, English and Scottish armies had fought, ranging from full-scale battles to minor raids. While the Queen herself may have chosen James, both courts would be aware of how unpopular a Scottish king on the English throne could be, and so an active effort was made to improve the popular image of James. News from Scotland was, simply put, a propaganda piece, designed to appeal to the Christian piety of the English by portraying James as a devout ruler who was personally singled out by the devil as his greatest enemy on earth. Pretty high praise, it has to be said. The North Berwick Trials benefited James at home as well as abroad, allowing him to reinforce royal authority in Scotland at the expense of his rebellious lords. As such, it would be helpful to know who some of these lords were, wouldn't it? Well, perhaps the most famous and high-born suspect of the trials was Francis Stuart, the 5th Earl of Bothwell but this story also involves his rival, the Lord Chancellor of Scotland, John Maitland, as well as the Lady Dowager of Angus, Jean Leon, and her enemies in the Douglas family. Of course, while nobility was no protection in the North Berwick Trials, as we will see, we must remember that the vast majority of those convicted in this hunt were poor, illiterate women, and by virtue of their status, we know very little about them. So to set the stage for the political aspect of the Trials, let us explain who the hell everyone is this bothwell was james's first cousin and the nephew of hepburn the third and final husband of mary queen of scots and the prime suspect in the murder of james's father lord darnley her second husband through this family connection bothwell was highly placed in the line of succession particularly while james had no heir of his own this familial connection demanded that bothwell hold Certain titles in James's court, namely the Lord Admiralship, which was meant to be at least nominally responsible for the safe passage of the king to Denmark. Bothwell's personality won him few friends at court. He was noted to have an intelligence that was matched only by his aristocratic pride, a pride that naturally chafed against James's own sense of royal prerogative. Like many Scottish nobles, Bothwell was no stranger to violence, taking part in the classic Scottish pastime of the Blood Feud, where one or more families held grudges that could go back decades and routinely led to violence. There was one case, in 1584, where Bothwell attacked members of the Hume family due to a feud and killed three of them, with particular attention paid to a man called Davy Hume, who he, quote, hewed all to pieces. Well, I never. What did the Humes ever do to him? Despite this wild temperament, when James left the kingdom for his romantic voyage, who did he leave his government in the hands of? Bothwell. And to be fair, he acquitted himself fairly well. He faced some opposition from the Kirk, the Scottish church, due to his wanton butchery, and at one point he had to kneel in front of a congregation and be berated by the bishop for his sins. Still, he largely avoided killing anyone, which is a good start. We will return to Bothwell later in the episode. Another character we should know about is Jean Leon, a noblewoman with an unfortunate marriage record. Jean was born in the 1550s or 60s, although we're not sure of an exact date. Her first marriage was in 1583 to Robert Douglas, who gave her a son who would grow to be the future 7th Earl of Morton. Robert was sadly lost at sea two years later, and so Jean married Archibald Douglas in 1588. Yes, this is the same family. Archibald was the 8th Earl of Angus, and had himself been married twice, although no children were born from these unions. Similarly to Robert, Archibald died within a year of his marriage to Jean, who was pregnant with his child. Jean's third marriage went slightly better, marrying outside of the Douglas family, presumably wanting a change, to Alexander Lindsay, the future Lord Spinney, or Spiney. I'm not entirely sure of the pronunciation, but I'm going to go with Spiney, because it's funnier. Spiney was one of James's favourites for a time, accompanying the king to Denmark, and this relationship with the king will come into play later when, spoilers, Jean is implicated in using witchcraft to murder her husbands. Why would she be accused of such? I hear you incredulously shouting at your speakers. We of course cannot be sure, but it may have something to do with Jean holding a significant portion of her second husband's wealth due to being pregnant with his child upon his death. This wealth would only be returned to Archibald's heir if Jean died. What was the punishment for witchcraft again? Oh, yes, execution. Lovely. Archibald was the eighth Earl of Angus, and he died after a long illness in 1588. His biographer, David Hume, there's an awful lot of Humes today, was the first to suggest that he had been killed through witchcraft, which will come up later. Having no living sons, as Jean was still only pregnant, the title of Angus passed to William Douglas, a distant relative. William was the great-grandson of the 5th Earl of Angus, but who now gained a sizeable territory, although not without quite a bit of effort. Since his claim was so distant, he had challengers for the title, none more important than, oh, say, King James VI of Scotland. James argued that he had the stronger claim, as his claim was from the 6th Earl of Angus much closer chronologically but the Court of Session, a body made up of seven lords, seven bishops, and the Lord Chancellor, rejected the King's claim on the grounds that his claim was through the female line, while William's was through the male. James essentially went, Fine, he can have it, but he needs to pay me for it. So William then owed James 40,000 marks in compensation. Importantly, though, Jean and her new husband, Lord Spiney, had backed the King's claim, and William was not best pleased at all. This woman held a portion of his rightful inheritance, and tried to stop him getting the rest of it by toadying up to the king. And don't think there was any familial familiarity here. In early modern Scotland, if you remarried into another family after death or divorce, you lost any link to your former in-laws. No favours, no Christmas cards, nothing. For William, Jean was now an outsider, who had affronted him personally, and who had stolen what was rightfully his. So these are the key noble players in this unfolding drama, but of course these are but a fraction of the people involved in some way with the North Berwick Witch Trials. The trials themselves, as recounted in News from Scotland, began with the arrest of Gillis Duncan. Before I go any further, I should say that there are far too many spellings of names for people involved in this trial. I've done my best to choose the most commonly recorded ones, but in some cases I'm at a loss – there are two people that I'm more or less convinced are actually the same, but we'll deal with that when we get there. Anyway, Gillis Duncan was a servant in the town of Tranant, about nine miles to the east of Edinburgh. At some point in 1590, Duncan had begun to exhibit miraculous healing powers and often disappeared at night, and her master, David Seaton, asked her about these developments. Well, wouldn't you know it, Duncan kept mum, and Seaton, who was the deputy bailiff of Trannant, had the girl arrested and tortured. The specific method used was the pillywinks, a Scottish term for thumbscrews, as well as, quote, binding or wrenching the head with a cord of rope, which most likely involved the witch's bridle, a particularly painful device. For the squeamish, I suggest skipping forward about 30 seconds. I'll give you some time. Still here? Well, The witch's bridle was a head-enclosing piece of metal that had sharp prongs, designed so that when attached to the victim's head, they would pierce the victim's mouth and face. To amplify the pain, the victim would be suspended by a rope, causing the metal to repeatedly slice into their tongue, cheeks, and skin. For those that skipped ahead, trust me, the bridle was a lovely device that sprouted rainbows and fun. So, after repeated sessions of this torture, Duncan still did not confess a single thing, and it was almost looking like Seton had arrested and mutilated his servant for no reason. But then what a surprise! The devil's mark was found on her neck! Remember the devil's mark? That it could be literally anything and a determined prosecutor could make it work? Well, at this point, Duncan confessed to everything put to her, and explained what she had done on the Devil's orders, and how she had used witchcraft to enact his infernal will. Duncan was then asked to name her accomplices, and she sung like a canary. A canary tortured to the point of exhaustion, that is. The list of accomplices included Agnes Simpson, Agnes Thompson, Barbara Napier, and Euphemia Macalzian, and what is particularly interesting about those last two names is their relatively high status. News from Scotland describes them as, quote, as civil, honest women as any that dwelled within the city of Edinburgh before they were apprehended. Agnes Sampson is described in the sources as, quote, a poor, cunning woman, as well as, quote, the eldest witch of them all. Upon her arrest, after being denounced by Duncan, she was taken to Holyrood to see the king and his court. Despite James and the nobles requesting that she tells the truth, she would not confess to being a witch, standing, quote, stiffly in the denial of all that was laid to her charge. So she was whisked away and ordered tortured. In the same way as Duncan, thumbscrews and the witch's bridle, which she resisted for an hour without succumbing. Her entire body was then shaved, as the devil mark was thought to be hidden among body hair, and lo and behold, quote, the devil's mark was found upon her privates, then she immediately confessed whatsoever was demanded of her. End quote. After this, she was again brought before James, and her confession was so varied it was unbelievable. Literally, James did not believe her, calling the witches, quote, extreme liars. So Samson took the king to one side, and, quote, she declared unto him the very words which passed between the king's majesty and his queen at Oslo, in Norway, the first night of their marriage whereat the king's majesty wandered greatly and swore by the living god that he believed that all the devils in hell could not have discovered the same, quote. This suitably convinced the king, and from this point on he accepted their confessions as true. Just as a quick aside, this is probably a fabrication, designed to preempt any suggestion that James was foolish to believe such fanciful stories. This is intended for an audience, after all, so it makes sense that James is shown as being Wisely skeptical of the more extraordinary confessions, and is only convinced when the witches provide evidence of their power. Next, Agnes Thompson was brought before the king. Now, Thompson and Sampson seem to be combined into one person in some records, but news from Scotland distinctly separates them into two people, so I will consider them two people for the purposes of this show. But just so everyone is aware, early modern Scottish texts are ever so slightly contradictory. Anyway, Thompson was brought before the king in between the hearings of Samson, and was questioned about the Sabbaths that she had attended. Duly confessing, Thompson refers to All Holland Ewan, or All Hallows' Eve, or Halloween, as the date of a great meeting of two hundred witches who had sailed across the sea in Sibs to a church in North Berwick. More on Halloween in a future episode. The first quote at the beginning of today's episode is from her testimony of this meeting, where James is declared to be the greatest enemy of the devil. Thompson went on to describe one of her attempts to kill the king. She had hanged a black toad for three days, catching its venom in an oyster shell, which she intended to use to taint a piece of the king's own clothing. This would bewitch the king to death, and putting him, quote, to such extraordinary pains, as if he had been lying upon sharp thorns and ends of needles. But she had been unable to get hold of any of the king's clothes, her old friend John Kurz, one of the king's attendants, being unwilling to help her. Her second attempt to kill the king involved creating the storms on his journey to Denmark, from news from Scotland. Moreover, she confessed that at the time when His Majesty was in Denmark, she, being accompanied with the parties before specially named, took a cat and christened it, and afterward bound to each part of the cat the chiefest parts of a dead man, and several joints of his body, and that on the following night the following cat was conveyed into the midst of the sea by all of these witches sailing in their riddles or cities as is foresaid, and so left the said cat right before the town of Leith in Scotland. This done, there did arise such a tempest in the sea, as greater hath not been seen. Which tempest was the cause of the perishing of a boat or vessel, coming out of the town of Bruntland to the town of Leith? Wherein was sundry jewels and rich gifts, which should have been presented to the now Queen of Scotland, at Her Majesty's coming to Leith. Again it is confessed, that the said christened cat was the cause, that the King's Majesty's ship, at his coming forth of Denmark, had a contrary wind to the rest of his ships, then being in his company. Which thing was most strange and true, as the king's majesty acknowledged? For when the rest of the ships had a fair and good wind, then was the wind contrary, and altogether against his majesty. And further the said witch declared that his majesty had never come safely from the sea if his faith had not prevailed above their intentions." End quote. Again, there is another boast of just how pious James Stewart is. No one is more pious than him. Barbara Napier was directly accused of causing the death of the 8th Earl of Angus, Jean Leon's second husband, by witchcraft. He had wasted away from, quote, so strange a disease as the physician knew not how to cure or remedy, end quote. We will spend more time with Napier later on, when we discuss Jean Leon's narrow escape. But for now, just know that Napier had links to both Jean Leon and the Earl Bothwell. And so we turn to Dr. John Fian, who we haven't really covered yet, but is quite important to the North Berwick trials. After all, the subtitle of News from Scotland describes, quote, the damnable life and death of Dr. Fian, a notable sorcerer, end quote. Fian appears in our narrative during the prosecution of Gillis Duncan, as she gave up his name and described him as the, quote, registrar, as well as being the only man allowed to attend the Sabbath. After being arrested, he was subjected to the witch's bridle, although this apparently did not make him confess. Then the prosecutors attempted to use, quote, fair means to convince him to confess, and while I cannot find out what fair means would be defined as, it doesn't really matter because this failed to gain a confession either. So the interrogators progressed to the, quote, most severe and cruel pain in the world. End quote, the boots. Despite the rather tame name, the boots are genuinely terrible. Again, for the squeamish, I'd recommend skipping forward about 30 seconds. There were variants of the boots used across Europe, but in the British Isles, the boots tended to consist of three wooden boards that were tied to the victim's feet with rope. Once firmly attached, wedges were hammered between the feet and the wood applying enough pressure to shatter bones and pop joints out of their sockets. Many survivors of the boots spent the rest of their life crippled. Nasty stuff. So, Dr. Fian was subjected to the boots, and after three strokes of the hammer against the wedge, he appeared to want to confess. However, his tongue refused to obey him, and so some other more compliant witches were consulted. These consultants discovered that there were two pins under his tongue, charmed, to prevent him from confessing. As an aside, it is very common for interrogators of witches to find a magical obstacle, stopping their subject from confessing. Sometimes it was as simple as finding the devil's mark, and therefore breaking his power. Or like so with Dr. Fian, where similar magical or holy means were used to remove such an obstruction. Well, this worked, and the good doctor was brought before the king and confessed to his crimes. What were his crimes? Well, he admitted to attending the Sabbaths, where he acted as the clerk and made a note of everyone in attendance. He also confessed to driving a romantic rival insane through his witchcraft. The man in question was brought before the king, and proceeded to spasm and jump about with such ferocity that the men present were unable to restrain him and had to call for backup. He was tied up, and an hour later came to without any recollection of his actions in the presence of half the leading men of the kingdom. The target of his affection was, however, unwilling to be courted, and so Dr. Fian bribed her brother with free education if he was able to gather three pubic hairs from his sister to be used in a love spell, and the boy agreed. The things we do to avoid tuition fees. However, their mother realised Dr. Fian's intentions as she was herself a witch. She beat her son like a rented mule until he revealed his deal with the good doctor. As a cunning woman in her own right, The mother had just the trick to put Dr. Fian in his place. She took some hairs from the udder of her cow and gave them to her son to return to the doctor. Overjoyed, Dr. Fian cast his love spell, only for the cow to go straight to him and attempt to seduce him. Shockingly, he was not interested, but the townspeople certainly were, who thought it was hilarious that the cow continued to follow him around for days. So Dr. Fian signed his confession and was remanded in custody to await his execution, but at this point he managed to escape and flee, only to be picked up again shortly after. Upon his return, however, he brazenly denied his previous confessions, and the king decided that Theon must have spent his time at liberty in conference with the devil. This explained his sudden recantation. James asserted that he should have a new mark, but none could be found. Nevertheless, he was commanded to have the most strange torment. Again, skip ahead if you don't fancy this. His nails were removed with pincers, and pins were forced into the beds. Not confessing, he was once again subjected to the boots, but even by shattering his legs so that, the blood and marrow spouted forth in great abundance and left him crippled for life, he refused to confess. News from Scotland states that, quote, So deeply had the devil entered his heart that he utterly denied all that which he had previously avouched, and would say nothing thereunto unto this, except that what he had done and said before was only done and said for fear of pains which he had endured. Well, this wouldn't do at all. To his credit, Fian remained resolute in his protestations of innocence, and that he had only admitted his fantastical crimes because he didn't want to suffer further torture, Despite this, his previous confession was considered enough, and he was judged guilty and sentenced to death. He was taken by cart to Edinburgh Castle Hill, where he was strangled to death, and his body burnt to ash. Before we continue, I thought this would be a good time to talk about executions in the North Berwick trials. The vast majority of those executed for witchcraft were tied to the stake, strangled by a rope or cord until dead, and then the pyre would be set alight. A lot of planning went into such an execution. It wasn't simply a bonfire with a pole in the middle. The stake would have had likely been at least five metres long, to allow one metre secured to the ground, two metres to be hidden by the base of the pyre, and another two to bind the witch to, strangle them on, and to support the body as it burnt. The last thing you wanted was a leaning stake. If the witch was already dead, it might mean they did not fully burn. If they were alive, well, there was a chance they could escape the flames. The pyre had to be fairly dense to act as a platform for the witch and their executioner, and in some cases the building of a pyre was a community bonding event if the witch was unpopular. However, often the pyre would not solely be made out of wood. For John fien's execution, for example, multiple loads of coal were needed to complete the pyre, and peat was often used to boost the heat of the flames. Wood can reach temperatures of roughly a thousand degrees Celsius while on a pyre, but coal and peat can reach close to 1300, although of course the actual temperatures would be much lower. Even so, burning to ash was important. Witchcraft was considered such an evil crime that the witch had to be punished in death as well as life, and burning the body prevented a Christian burial. Some folk beliefs held that the witch would then be prevented from returning during the resurrection, although this was not true in the minds of theologians. It was considered unusual for the condemned to be burnt alive, and so much has been written about the execution of Euphemia Macalzian. James was said to have ordered her burnt while still alive, possibly due to her involvement with the attempt on his life, or possibly for political reasons due to her high status, to use her graphic death as evidence that wealth and power would not protect you from justice. So the case of Jean Leon is particularly interesting. Here was a noblewoman with suspected ties to witchcraft. What happened when rumours swirled that her second husband had been murdered with witchcraft? Well, initially, nothing. As we covered earlier, Archibald Douglas's biographers had suggested that his illness was supernatural in origin fairly soon after his death. But for one reason or another, Jean Lyon appears to have escaped suspicion. It was only during the North Berwick trials that Jean was linked to the rumours, particularly when Agnes Sampson was interrogated in January 1591. Sampson was accused of, among other things, of course, enchanting a ring for Barbara Napier. This ring would grant Napier, quote, Jean Lyon's favour and love, end quote, and that Napier had, quote, other ends, which are to be revealed in their own time. Ominous. Victoria Carr suggests that these confessions may not have been invented by Samson, but rather coerced by one or more of the interrogators in order to pursue Jean on charges of witchcraft or consorting with witches. Sadly, the documents she uses do not state who was present at the interrogation, so we can only speculate. We do know, however, that the ninth Earl of Angus was involved in the witch trials, and he certainly had a motive, but nothing yet came of it. During another interrogation, this time of a woman called Janet Kennedy, Sampson is directly accused of causing the death of Archibald. Agnes Sampson, who was summer night betwixt the midsummer and Lammas, had a long, small picture of wax in her hand, black hued, which was devised for the Earl of Angus's destruction, and put in a basin full of water and made to grow weak and so to melt away. By this time, the death of the 8th Earl of Angus was assumed to be caused by witchcraft, and Barbara Napier was found guilty of conspiring to kill the Earl. Further evidence came with the execution of Sampson, where she stated that, quote, a picture of wax was brought to her, having A.D. written on it, which, as they had said to her, did signify Archibald Davidson, end quote. She had since realised that this had instead been targeting the Earl. David Calderwood's account, an excerpt of which we heard at the beginning of today's episode, details how the Earl had been afflicted with sorcery, and yet his faith was so strong that he refused to accept magical assistance, preferring to leave his fate up to God. Importantly for our purposes, another account details the name of the potential magical assistant, one Richard Graham, who we will see again soon. The Earl Bothwell, himself accused of witchcraft at this point, had given a version of events that had Jean Lyon request that he send Richard Graham to help her husband, and indicates that this had happened multiple times. Consulting with witches was, of course, just as terrible a crime as being one, and so this was a serious state of affairs for Jean. Multiple confessed witches, and a suspected nobleman, had implicated her in one way or another with the magical death of her husband. As shown with the executions of Napier and Macalzian, and the treatment of Bothwell, wealth and status was no obstacle to the stake. But Jean managed to survive the trials, and, many of her accusers, dying of natural causes in 1609. How did she successfully avoid the stake? Carr makes a convincing case. While James had promised her husband, Lord Spiney, that he would protect Jean from the charges, this seems unlikely. James had shown time and again that he abhorred witchcraft, and worse still, if Jean had plotted her husband's death, she would be guilty of petty treason in addition to murder and witchcraft. A second possibility is that, as the trials progressed and became to focus more and more upon the threat to the king's life, everything else became much less important, and Jean's suspected mariticide would have fallen by the wayside. I find these reasons unlikely too, Archibald Douglas was not some no name peasant, he was a powerful lord, and the Douglases were highly influential. If ordinary men and women could be ruthlessly convicted, why would the magical murder of a noble not receive even greater attention? True, Napier had been found guilty of the crime and executed, but the suspected involvement of his wife would surely have been a matter worth pursuing. For that reason, I agree with Carr's proposal that the main proponent of Jean's sorceress links was the 9th Earl of Angus, William Douglas, who died on the 1st of July 1591, roughly the same time that Jean's involvement in the death of her husband was quietly dropped. Granted, the trials had passed their peak at this time, but the coincidence is convincing. So, Jean Lyons survived direct accusations that she had murdered her husband with witchcraft during one of the worst witch panics ever seen in the British Isles, in the reign of Scotland's most witch fearing monarch. That is itself an achievement. And so now we turn to Bothwell. Francis Stuart, the man who would be king, or wouldn't be, or wanted to be, depends on who you ask. When James went to Denmark, Bothwell was trusted enough to be given the keys to the kingdom, and yet just a few short years later, he would be exiled, after having led a rebellion against his king, his lands forfeit, his wealth seized, and doomed to die in exile in poverty in Naples in 1612. So what happened to cause the downfall of such a powerful figure? I'll give you a hint, it's in the title of this podcast. That's right, he wrote a history book, and James didn't like what he wrote. Of course not, Bothwell was accused of plotting the death of the king through witchcraft, either making a deal with the devil himself, or through intermediaries, like Agnes Sampson. Whether he was guilty of this, or just getting on the wrong side of James and his Lord Chancellor, John Maitland, I will leave up to you, gentle listeners. Imagine it's a cold, windy January day in the year 1591. Agnes Sampson was being tortured with thumb screws in a damp, dark dungeon in Edinburgh and having a horrible time of it. Her interrogators demanded to know who her accomplices were in her blasphemous crimes. They tighten the screws as far as they can, and poor Agnes only repeats the names she had already given. Her interrogators, tiring of her stubbornness, threatened to put her in the bridle and leave her hanging for a week, and Agnes, struck by the fear of returning to such a device, blurts out between her sobs one name, one title, Bothwell. Her interrogators step back in shock, in horror, that a man of such high status and renown could have been involved with such a heinous crime. They demand to know more, and Agnes, feeling the screws loosen and her torturer's interest grow, nervously explains that she had been promised gold and silver and food from her lord Bothwell for her services. The men unshackle the old woman and rush her up to the king's presence, where she repeats herself to James. Already convinced of the truth in the words of these witches, James is horrified to learn that his own cousin had been plotting against him. Bothwell was summoned and fervently denied these charges, swearing on his honour and his Christian faith that he would never stoop so low as to make use of such evil as witchcraft. Despite his protestations, Bothwell was seized by the guards and imprisoned in Edinburgh Castle. Now, that is my dramatic rendition of events, and just like Braveheart or Gladiator, it has very little semblance to reality. Samson did say, quote, There would be both gold and silver and victual from my lord Bothwell, but it was only during the torture of a witch called Janet Stratton in April 1591 that events were truly set in motion. Stratton was said to confess that treasonable magic had been performed at the direct order of Bothwell, and he was summoned to the Privy Council to answer these charges. Of course, he denied them, but was imprisoned anyway. This was the talk of the kingdom. One diarist, Robert Birrell, writes that Bothwell was charged with, quote, alleged witchcraft and consulting with witches, especially with one Richard Graham, to conspire the king's death, End quote. Richard, or Richie Graham, repeatedly testified that Bothwell had committed treason multiple times. Once, he asked Graham to predict when the king would die, an act that we have previously covered was highly treasonous. Elizabeth got into some hot water with her sister, Queen Mary, after she was told the Queen's horoscope, and similarly to Elizabeth, Bothwell had a significant political interest in the answer. He had a strong claim on the throne, and had a good chance of gaining the crown if his cousin croaked before producing an heir. When brought before the King and his court, including his Lord Chancellor Maitland, he said, quote, He alleged that this matter grew not only by Graham, but sprang from his enemies, and that this practice with Graham was devised against him. In other words, he was suggesting that he was being unjustly associated with witches by his enemies at court. On the 21st of June, as the trials for Napier and Macalzean heated up, literally, Bothwell managed to escape custody at Edinburgh Castle. Four days later, while Macalzean was being burnt alive at the stake, the Privy Council issued a statement denouncing Bothwell for being, quote, in the hands of Satan. And quote, heaping treason upon treason against God, His Majesty, and his native country, the statement went on to explain that the Earl was part of the same conspiracy that was being uprooted in the North Berwick trials, and Bothwell's properties were seized as the Privy Council's proclamation spread throughout Scotland. A counterstatement appeared addressed to the nobility and almost certainly from Bothwell or one of his close supporters. This statement Argued that Bothwell was being attacked for political reasons, not for any actual crime, and points out that the most vocal witness against Bothwell is Richard Graham, and that, quote, If Richie Graham affirms, and Earl Bothwell denies, which, may I ask, ought to be believed? Quote. The obvious implication is that Bothwell, as a lord of the realm, should not be hounded on the words of a self confessed witch, or, quote, a pretended necromancer, both in effect a liar and a false abuser. Ignorant of that art that men would attribute unto him. So Graham is not only lying about Bothwell, he's lying about being a witch on the orders of someone else. The letter implies that Graham had been coerced by the enemies of Bothwell in the king's court to testify against him. That he would not be executed if he worked with them. In that staple of medieval and early modern, blame the king without actually blaming the king which we all know and love from the history of England, the letter says the court is full of evil counsellors who, quote, in gilded and painted palaces execute their power at the dictates of hatred and favour, quote. The letter ends with an appeal to Bothwell's fellow aristocrats, quote, if Bothwell shall die because they fear him, then neither shall your lives be safe, for you also give them terror. Bothwell, still at large in August, wrote a letter to James denying all of the charges and claiming that they were invented by both his own and the king's enemies. Dispossessed since June, he begged the king to show mercy to his wife and children and take them into royal care. This entreaty did not work. His letter was read aloud to the court so that, quote, all the presents might know the contents and his evil acceptance thereof. So, when James refused to be his penpal... Bothwell went to visit him in person in December, at the head of an armed force. He attacked Holyrood House in an attempt to seize the king and to kill his prime rival and chief accuser, Maitland, who he held responsible for his misfortune. David Calderwood describes how, quote, He and his accomplices came to the king's door, the queen's, and the chancellors, at one time with fire to the king's door, with hammers to the queen's door. But they appear to have been sturdy doors, and the occupants were safe until reinforcements arrived and forced Bothwell's force away, capturing a number of his followers who were later hanged in Edinburgh. The following year, in February 1592, Richard Graham was executed. This was either the natural progression of his trial, or the tidying up of a loose end depending on your perception of events. In the case of the latter, Bothwell was now an outlaw, and so his enemies at court had no need for their pet witch. Still, to his death, Graham maintained that Bothwell had been working against the king. You could choose to believe that this was in fact the case, and he was trying to absolve himself before his death, or that he was still being manipulated, either by promising clemency at the last minute, or by supporting his family after his death. In either case, Graham was strangled on Castle Hill, and his body burnt at the stake. For his part, Bothwell was still a threat. He attacked Falkland Palace in June with an army of four hundred men while James and Queen Anne were in residence, but was forced away. A year later in july fifteen ninety three, he finally staged a successful coup, capturing the king through the treachery of members of James's court. In a fine act of theatre, Bothwell marched up to the king with his sword unsheathed, on only to drop to one knee and quote, offering his sword in surrender and loudly calling for the king's pardon. Among his demands, for make no mistake they were demands, not request, was the return of his estates, and a fair trial on the charges of witchcraft. The trial date was set, and the plotters arranged for their actions, and their previous actions to be condoned after the fact. Bothwell now found himself in a bit of a dilemma. He effectively had two options, either kill the king, or eventually to yield power back to him. Killing the king had significantly worse ramifications, so he was content to have his name cleared in a trial, and hope that he could weather James's anger in one of his newly returned castles. In August, the trial went ahead, and surprise, surprise, Bothwell was acquitted. But Bothwell had overplayed his hand. By enacting his coup, he had convinced many of his peers that he was dangerous, and abandoning Edinburgh after his acquittal and returning power to the king was foolish. Whatever the law said, whatever a court packed with his supporters had decided, he had rebelled against the king, took him captive, and forced him to agree to his terms. This was James Stuart, one of the most vocal proponents of divine right of kings, and you tried to burn down his bedroom door. With Bothwell out of Edinburgh, James's former allies returned, including Maitland, and by September the concessions made by a figurative, and sometimes literal, sword-edge were reversed. Bothwell, again dispossessed, fled south to England, James's apparent ally and benefactor. This is another example of Scotland and England's fascinating relationship. Elizabeth had repeatedly pressured James to do something about his Catholic nobles, and James had dithered on the point. So Elizabeth packed Bothwell back across the border with an English force to apply another sort of pressure. Attacking Leith, Bothwell was again defeated, and Elizabeth found herself questioning why she had ever supported him doubly so when Bothwell, bereft of Protestant allies, joined forces with the very same Catholic lords that Elizabeth had so hated. In February 1594, Anne gave birth to James's first son, Henry, although he sadly would not live to adulthood. But this did give James the impetus to finally deal with the Catholic lords that had been causing so much trouble, the lords of Huntley, Errol, and her old friend, the Earl of Angus. This is the 10th Earl of Angus, William Douglas, the son of the 9th Earl of Angus, also called William Douglas, who hated Jean Leon with such a passion. These lords had conspired with the Spanish against both James and Elizabeth, had helped Bothwell in the past, and were helping him now. But in March 1595, these lords were defeated. With Huntley and Errol going into exile for just over a year before returning in 1596, and joining Angus in converting to Presbyterianism in 1597, through a long, meandering chain of events from the North Berwick Trials until now, Catholicism had been removed as a political danger to the Protestant rulers of Scotland. For Bothwell, well, there was no generous pardon for him. He was already supposedly a Presbyterian, and yet had fought against his king on the side of the treasonous Catholics. He was excommunicated by the Kirk as early as 1595, his lands were distributed among more loyal families, and his brother, Hercules Stuart, which is an amazing name, was hanged. Bothwell was forced into exile in April of the same year, travelling around Europe before eventually settling in the Italian states, where he had a reputation for suspected necromancy proving that some rumours you just can't get away from. He died in 1612, in abject poverty, while James had acceded to the throne of England and had many years left. So there you have it, the North Berwick Trials. I've seen casualty estimates as high as 70 for this trial, and it is certainly one of the few times that Britain suffered such a panic. James had begun the trials while his kingdom was ravaged by uncertainty over his reign, the succession of the Crown and sectarian violence. With the exile of Bothwell and the return to the fold of the Catholic Lords, something resembling peace had returned to Scotland just in time for James to move south to his new home in London. The North Berwick trials are fascinating, both for the way they stand out in British history, mostly empty of mass panics of the kind seen in Central Europe, as well as how they were used in courtly intrigues to attack personal enemies. Next week, we will cover the rest of James's reign, how he succeeded Elizabeth to the throne of England, and how he migrated his personal beliefs, both in the divine right of kings and in witchcraft, to English law and society. Thank you for listening to this episode of The History of Witchcraft. If you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving me a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast app you use. You can visit the website at thehistoryofwitchcraft.co.uk, where you will find my contact details if you have any questions. The show also has a Facebook page and a Twitter feed if you want to keep up to date. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening.